0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Scott Luton and special guest host Ray Atia here with you on Supply Chain. Now, welcome to today's show, Ray. How are we doing?
1: I am excellent, uh, restless but excited.
0: I know you are, and and for good reason. Uh, I, we appreciate you kind of connecting us with today's guest and the story and the whole mission behind it. And I know it's it's, it's one of personal interest for you, right?
1: It is. It is. Uh, uh, You know, as we talked about on our last podcast, you know, uh, I surprisingly had the sale of three startups in a matter of a year. And then I'm like, where do I spend my time giving back? And uh, Last Mile Food Rescue has been an amazing uh, place to volunteer.
0: So now that you've let our cat out of the bag. Yes. Uh, We have an excellent conversation today as we're going to be talking about a nonprofit organization based in Cincinnati that's on a mission to save good food and get it to the folks that need it most. It's really going to be a fascinating story of logistics, leadership, purpose, and a lot more. Is that right, Ray? Do I I have it right just about?
1: Absolutely. Yes.
0: (laughs) All right. So let's dive right in with our special guest, Eileen Udo. Chief Operating Officer with Last Mile Food Rescue, Eileen. How you doing?
2: I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks so much for having me on today.
0: It is really nice to meet you. Uh, any friend of Ray's is certainly a friend of mine, and uh, it's great to have Ray kind of joining me as a co-host to help interview the leadership behind one of our favorite charities and nonprofits that are out there doing good good work. So, Eileen, before we get into your professional journey. And before we get into more about what Last Mile Food Rescue is all about, let's get to know you a little better. Is that, are you game for that? I'm game for that. All right. Wonderful. <laughs> so, Eileen, where did you grow up? And and you got to give us a good little bit on your upbringing. Sure. So,
2: I grew up on the East Coast in New Jersey. A lot of people say, gee, you don't sound like you're from New Jersey. And I don't think I ever sounded like I was from New Jersey, but certainly when I go back, my sister sounds like she's from New Jersey. but uh, yeah, my whole family is still in New Jersey, New York came from a a combination Irish, Catholic, Polish Catholic family, and just really enjoyed good food, good family connection and and, uh, you know, just really enjoyed a, a nice, wholesome upbringing.
0: okay
2: And um, yeah, so.
0: Well, you know what I'm going to ask you, because you mentioned food and, you know, we were talking a little bit food on the front end as we all are, are working through our, our dietary initiatives (laughs) in January. What is there one dish? And Ray, I think I asked you this question last time you're with us, uh, because you also have some New Jersey ties, but Eileen, what, what is one dish when you think about your upbringing, what's that one, what's what's one of the dishes that really you could never separate from your childhood?
2: (laughs) Well, that's a really hard question because... (laughs) I'd have to think about the holiday. So, you know, considering the fact that we just passed Christmas, growing up, we would always spend Christmas Eve with my grandmother, my Polish grandmother. So we would always have pierogies on Christmas Eve. And, you know, I never made them myself. I'm a pretty good cook um, and I never made them myself. But this past Christmas, I decided I was going to I was going to go for it. And they turned out pretty good. As a matter of fact, I made them with my future son-in-law. And, uh, yeah, he, he, he did a pretty good job too. So
0: <laughs> Awesome. All right. Ray, have you, have you, when's the last time you had a pierogi Ray?
1: Oh, you know what? So I grew up in New Jersey and some of my college uh, friends were from the Northern part of New Jersey, uh, up in Caldwell area. So, and they were Polish. So we had pierogies quite a bit. Really? Uh, oh yeah, absolutely.
0: So right. I
1: haven't had it in Cincinnati but growing up in New Jersey. Uh, I definitely had pierogies uh, on a uh, on a pretty frequent basis.
2: I love that. I think every I think every th- every nationality every culture every culture has a some type of a dumpling, and that's mm-hmm. essentially what a pierogi is. For those that don't know it, it's the Polish version of an empanada. A uh, you know, it's just a a little piece of dough with some stuff inside that tastes really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think
0: Man. I think
1: the one the ones that I remember were uh, were potatoes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: My favorite are sauerkraut. All right, time out, time out. Y'all are killing me here. You're I'm I'm gonna have to go out and find a dumpling at some point tonight. That's gonna break my 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 diet pledge. But I think you're right. I love I love your comment there, Eileen. Every, every society, every uh folks from every different background does do have some sort of dumpling. I think I've seen a, a show on PBS uh, along those lines. So sounds like uh part of your holidays were spent baking great food, making great food. With members of your family. Those are special memories.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Okay. So now that everybody is starving that are listening to this, wherever you may be listening to this, let's, let's move to a little more food talk, because as we learned in doing some of our due diligence and our guests, you picked up a new hobby over the last couple of years. Tell us about that, Ali.
2: Well, I picked up a new hobby um, during COVID, but I would say in general food and and cooking and that sort of thing has always been an interest of mine. So actually, when I retired, I went to culinary school in Cincinnati. My idea was that if I'm the best cook out of the laws and the in-laws, that all the kids would come back to my house for the holidays. So that's actually my my real reason for, for, for taking up culinary school. But I also... Needed to make a transition after working for so many years. I I needed to make a transition into a new industry, and I figured food was the place that I wanted to spend my time. But during COVID, you know, I mean, you're kind of stuck inside with nothing to do. I was I was finishing up my culinary degree, and we went online, and that's like culinary school online is like you might as well watch the Food Network because really. It really changed my whole uh, experience in culinary school, but I did decide to take up this whole concept of sourdough bread baking, you know, and and figured out how to make myself a starter and made some bricks, several, several bricks instead of bread, but eventually got, got pretty good at it. And, uh,
0: and now there's just way too many calories floating around my kitchen. So. But delicious calories. It sounds like yeah. I love sourdough bread. In fact, Eileen, when the farmers market is is in season here in uh in Monroe Georgia 6 months out of the year whatever it is there's one vendor that's always there she's all kind of baking and she's got the best sourdough bread and she's kind enough since you mentioned the starter and and I'm going to illustrate my complete lack of bread making uh prowess here in a second but she offered to give my wife Amanda a piece of the starter dough. Does that make sense?
2: Uh huh. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the way to do it. Otherwise you've got a good two and a half to four week wait time. Mm-hmm. And you know, you hope you can figure out how to make the starter, but if somebody can give you a starter, you're that's gold dust. It's good. Take
0: it's it too. Good. It is too <laughs> good. All right. Well, oh, and race. then
2: you've got not just the, uh,
1: the taste of it, but just the smell of the home
0: mm-hmm.
1: when you're, yeah. when you're baking.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Completely agree. All right.
2: It's not always sour. Just so for some of your listeners that don't know about sourdough bread, it's not that it's sour. It adds a super richness to the bread. So I make a uh, a cinnamon bread, you know, cinnamon, sugar, that rolled stuff that you can get Sarah Lee. I make a version of that with sourdough starter. And it is so delicious.
0: <laughs> <laughs> As we know now. We have set out and accomplished exactly what we all agreed not to do, but that's okay. That, that happens. And I really appreciate you sharing a, uh, a little more about who you are as a person and what your passions are. That I bet your culinary school experiences alone, you can, might could write a book about, but for now, for today, the rest of our conversation here today, uh, we're going to talk about uh, more logistics oriented aspects of your journey. Ray, where are we going next with our friend Eileen?
1: Well, Eileen just shared with us a little bit about growing up, where she grew up and uh, and so forth. Now we want to get into a little bit of your professional journey uh, and some of your journey before Last Mile Food Rescue. So uh, you and Scott have something in common with your uh, tenure at the Air Force. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what did you do at the Air Force?
2: Sure. So, uh, you know, I mentioned big family growing up and uh, not a ton of money to pay for college, but I knew I wanted to uh, to go someplace different, and and so um, I had an Air Force ROTC scholarship actually, and I went to Wellesley College in Massachusetts, took my ROTC classes at MIT, and thought for sure, you know, the Air Force would be a nice experience for me to get my college paid for, and you know, I'd I'd spend some time working at Hanscom Air Force Base and in, in Boston, and then you know, kind of go on my merry way. Well, that's not necessarily how it played out. I uh, I got an assignment to uh, to work in Air Force Systems Command at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and I'm I I traveled a good bit when I was younger. Um, I have relatives in Ireland, so it's not like I was you know afraid to leave my hometown. But going to Dayton, Ohio, I thought, oh my gosh, that's that's not what I had in mind. But it turned out to be a really wonderful experience for me. So I, uh, I was on a project called the advanced cruise missile. It was a missile that hung on the bottom of a B 52. Um, There was a version on the bottom of a one thankfully, we never used it because it's got a nice big nuclear warhead on it. But it was part of our, you know, deterrence at the time. And, uh, and it was a great experience for me. I was a project manager. But if I compare the work that I did in the Air Force, uh, it was very similar then to the work that I started doing at Procter & Gamble because essentially I was was in procurement. You know, the Air Force doesn't build anything themselves. They identify what their requirements are and then we find defense contractors to fulfill those needs. And so I worked with companies like General Dynamics and McDonnell Douglas and uh, Rockwell Engineering and those kinds of companies. And as a young professional, the amount of responsibility that I had was just incredible as I compared my experience in the Air Force to my colleagues, my my friends, my peers from from Wellesley or from MIT. You know, I, I got a lot of responsibility as a young 22 year old that I would not have gotten in uh, in the private sector. So it was really really fun, and I met my husband. Um, oh, wonderful! I met my husband in the Air Force, and he's from Chicago. I'm from New Jersey, so you know, hanging out in <laughs> Dayton, Ohio, and now Cincinnati, Ohio. It's sort of in between, so it'll work <laughs> no. Out
0: best. Eileen was your husband in the air force as well.
2: Yes. Yes. My husband was the air force in the air force. And he, um, was a career officer after six years, I got an assignment to go to grad school. And I, I kind of said, mm, I don't think I want to do that. Um, because that then required an additional commitment. So after six years I left, but because my husband was military, I looked for a great big company that was near Dayton that I could, could work at that other people would know about. So that in case he moved, then I'd have an opportunity to uh, to at least have a nice, nice other experience on my resume. And that's how I wound up at p and And those who are listening
1: to the podcast here, whether they're in college and so forth, your degree, I believe it was mathematics.
2: Your- math. Yes. Yes. I was a math major at Wellesley. Man. Which yeah. means I'm a good problem solver.
0: <laughs> well, so one, one more follow up question that for Ray uh, talks with you about your time at p you know, you made the comment a minute, a minute ago about just how much our military does entrust what goes on with these really young, brave, very capable men and women that, that, you know, whether they're enlisted, whether they're officers, you name it, it's it's really remarkable. Would you also, you know, during my time, I was a lowly data analyst, not doing exciting projects like what you were doing, not taking any away from my colleagues, but, um, you know, one of the things that really stuck out to me two things as it relates to the military and kind of what I'll call global supply chain is that commitment to get it done, whatever it takes, right? The problem, the creative problem solving that goes on, whether it's, it's wartime war environment or all the other missions that the military carries out during peacetime, it is just, it's extraordinary. And then the esprit de corps, that goes with that, where you've got a family, you know, uh, my supervisor will check in on me, stop by my dorm just to see how I was doing was really truly a family that I, I believe at least in my experiences working for manufacturers primarily there's a lot of that same esprit de corps and camaraderie is that how do did, how did your observations and experiences square with that
2: yeah absolutely i mean certainly from a work experience that get it done figure it out i, I mean you know i can relate a bit to um, or relay an experience that we had Things weren't going so well with the primary manufacturer. We had to find a second source. Um, And again, back to the responsibility that was given me, I was the project manager to find a second source for this massive piece of equipment. And, uh, you know, of course we had a team and we worked together. But, you know, as I compare the work that I did in the Air Force to my first responsibilities at PG, you know, I was extremely well trained. Extremely well trained um, to be resourceful, to be accountable, to take the lead, to figure out how to get things done. And also to rely on a team, you know, because you can't do everything yourself. And I think that life in the Air Force or life in the military is a family. You know, you're 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 working with other people that are focused on the same mission. And things like, you know, my husband was on a softball team and you know, it was just great fun to go to those games because the conversation in the stands, it wasn't a work conversation. We weren't talking about the job, but we were talking about our lives that happened to be focused on, you know, uh, what was going on in the military
0: at the time. I love so it was that. a great
2: experience. I loved, I loved being in the military.
0: Thank you for sharing. Ray, where are we headed next?
1: Well, we're headed to talk a little bit about P&G and she talked about how she was very well trained and really just using the math skills and problem solving. And you know when I look at what's happening today, whether it be you know the supply chain issues, we are thrown in a situation where we have a lot more problems that we've never encountered before. So having that skill set of how do you define a problem before you just jump into and throw search throwing solutions um, so I would like to hear a little bit more about your png experience but which role really shaped, your worldview, which role in your many years of P&G kind of stood out with you to say, that's the role that helped define and helped me see uh, really just the world through a different lens.
2: Sure. It was actually a job that I took um, probably after I was at P&G for about six years. So I started in manufacturing. It's interesting. They hired me in manufacturing because I think they thought that I, you know, had this group of military folks that were under my command. And that wasn't the kind of military experience that I had. Of course, I didn't have anybody who was reporting to me. So I went into manufacturing and I had, I was a team manager. I had people on my team that ran the manufacturing operation. What,
1: what, Which uh, which product or what were you making?
2: I was, I started at Iverdale at the oldest P um, and G uh, facility. Yeah. St. Bernard making ivory soap. And then, you know, it continued on to, to other soaps, um, in the manufacturing site, but you know, real classic manufacturing and, and it was a wonderful experience for me because certainly I was able to demonstrate my ability to lead and to get a team focused on a common goal, deliver against that objective. And when you run into challenges or problems, you know, you pause to understand what those are and you try to fix, fix the problem at the root cause. As I left manufacturing, I picked up a responsibility where I was um, I was leading North American beauty care capital purchasing. So that means any of the equipment that we needed in manufacturing. And it was a wonderful uh, kind of career transition for me um, because I went into procurement, which was oddly very much the work that I did when I was in the military was procurement, although I wasn't called a procurement manager. But it really it, it. it made use of my technical skills the skills that i developed when i was going through school the the skills that you know i i kind of honed a little bit in the military and certainly what i lived with day in and day out in manufacturing running a manufacturing line making sure that the line is efficient reliable all that kind of stuff but then i was in a position where i was working with engineers and and uh you know, various vendors to to make the kind of equipment that we needed for various startups that we had in, in beauty care capital. And at the time, uh, while I had responsibility for North America, I was working with a global team because we put global standard equipment in place in many, many instances for p So it was the first time that I had a chance to work with teams from China, um, teams from the UK, you know, wherever we had a beauty care manufacturing plant, we needed this equipment. So working with other, with buyers from other countries, I got an appreciation for the different way that things are done in a corporate environment. And despite P&G wanting to be standard, there were certainly some things that could and couldn't be done depending upon where you were putting your equipment. So that was really a, a fabulous opportunity for me to see how business is done outside the US. Um, it was a fabulous chance for me to get to know people of other cultures Um and, and, you know, it's something that then I continued to do for the rest of my career. I always you know wanted to do something that was global, working on global teams.
1: And uh, Procter & Gamble has a phenomenal uh, reputation of really building and manufacturing these kind of, you know, self-driven, uh, empowered work uh, groups. And there was something even recent about um, uh, how they were able to succeed, you know, in the pandemic because of that. You know self-driven team. So my guess is they're looking for your leadership skills cuz it tied to their leadership style of wanting leaders who trusted and cared about their employees.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was um as as the pandemic came around, my last job at PNG, I I was responsible for global real estate and facilities. So I had uh, the responsibility for all of our manufacturing sites around the globe and um, making sure that those facilities were able to do what they needed. Kind of said in a shorthand way, I was the queen of janitorial services. So <laughs> <laughs> bathrooms needed to be cleaned, the lawns needed to be mowed, the cafeterias needed somebody to be you know, in the kitchen cooking. Anything that, caught, that is needed in a facility in order for that facility to serve the purpose of the employees, that was, that was my job. I went out and find, found the suppliers to do that work. And uh, we put a a very large um, service program in place where we worked with a single company, um, and that single company provided our services all around the globe. And that uh, that enabled us a tremendous amount of standardization. Yet that company was very clear on on the fact that every country is different every culture is different. And in particular, when you're cooking food for people, you're not putting the standard peanut butter approach in place. So uh, mm-hmm. that was a really great, great job. And I, I'm really happy that we were able to accomplish that as we moved into COVID, because then if you think about, okay, I've got to have my folks show up to do a manufacturing job, right. we need to take temperatures, having a company that could just do that in a standard way across 100 plus manufacturing sites was a tremendous level of efficiency that png was able to take advantage of that many other companies could not
0: yeah you know don't be surprised if you're getting some phone calls after this interview uh given uh some of your skill set some of your key skill set and experiences you're sharing around this procurement and sourcing and we all know these last few years how how important how that really finally we've always talked about supply chain finally getting to see the table well a lot of procurement pros are saying the same thing now about how mm-hmm. procurement finally is getting the, the recognition that it deserves and, and the strategic value that it deserves. So who knows folks be looking to pick your brain in, in this uh, procurement important environment. Well, right, everybody so, took
1: for granted, everybody took for granted the supply chain until it didn't work.
0: Right. You know, uh, we absolutely. All
1: take, we all take and, uh take for granted toilet paper until we don't have it.
0: <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> and, and all of that aside, back, back when I was in metal stamping, and, and as we were, I was mainly working on new projects, right, uh, for a company here in Georgia. And we'd, we'd be bidding on certain uh, assemblies and whatnot. Well, I leaned heavily on our supply chain manager to be able to find the suppliers that could bring the certain parts we're after. And, you know, one of my eureka moments, I want to ask you about yours here in a minute, Eileen. But when I, what I learned in that role some know, 10 years ago or so is it's not easy, to pick up a phone and find a good quality supplier, whether you're trying to replace a supplier or trying to just find a new supplier for a new project, it is really, really tough. And I think the world uh, folks that that maybe that was in their blind spot in recent years, I think are learning that same lesson. But when you think about Eureka moments, uh, Eileen, whether it's one from your PNG days, one from right now, because we're about to talk about last mile food rescue, uh, or during your military days, What's a key Eureka moment that comes back to you from time to time,
2: especially now, as we're thinking about, or we just came through the holiday period. Um, I remember I was out walking my dog and it was uh, a period of time where I was having a, a, a lot of challenges with a supplier that we had in place that was, was doing some global work for us. And I remember thinking as I was on this walk, if I could just make it through Christmas. And I paused when I realized that I said to myself, if I can just make it through Christmas, what? That's crazy. What, what am I, what's going on here? Why am I thinking about just making it through Christmas? And it really caused me to pause and think about what was happening with the supplier. And, you know, you mentioned, Scott, that it's not easy um, to just pick up the phone in this instance it's not easy to let go of a supplier that you've been working with for four or five years just because something's not working so it was really a eureka moment for me in the sense that we we really needed to to pause take away you know oh i'm png i'm gonna buy this way i'm gonna get you know what i need for a certain amount of money we really needed both parties to sit at the table and talk about what they needed in order to be successful. What was required on the supplier side, what's required on the G side, and, and if there's a way that we can make both parties successful, winning on both sides of the table, that was a really critical moment for me where I, I, I knew about it intellectually, but I absolutely experienced it at that moment when I thought, no, I don't wanna just get through Christmas. I want to enjoy Christmas. Right. I'm only going to enjoy Christmas if I sit down at the table with the supplier and we sort this thing out, we figure out how to gather to, to work through this problem.
0: Eileen, that is such a gorgeous picture you just painted. And, you know, we oftentimes talk here, around here about how supply chain makes it happen. I, I I think there's so much a world can learn in all kinds of circles from how things happen in supply chain, including uh, what you just shared there. But Ray, get your weigh in on, on the Eureka moment Eileen just shared.
1: You know, so I know PNG has a program on like Connect and Develop. I don't know if that's uh, mm-hmm. consistent mm-hmm. with what you're talking about there. And so it's really a place for people to grow and ha- see the standards the same way. You know, Eileen mentioned standardization when you're taking across, you know, all the different areas, people see standardization often as a negative. Oh, you're trying to create a cookie cutter. No, standardization and having these high standards means we agree on the same promise. Mm -hmm. Okay, so standards are what is good. And often we confuse standards with best practice. Best practice is how do we do it? Mm -hmm. Standards are what we agree on is what is good. Mm. And often when we don't agree on what is good, I see a problem that somebody else doesn't. And that is a root of conflict that is one of the biggest areas is when I see my daughter doing something that she shouldn't be doing and she doesn't see anything wrong with it. Oh my goodness. You know, as (laughs) father of three daughters. So, so having standards, you know, for example, you know, my, my girls, the standard is you can wear it. If you see mommy wear it, there's a standard. Okay. I don't have to say no to everything, you know, uh, does it work? No, but at least there's a standard that they know Daddy's not going to be happy with this so but i think that what eileen said about you know i just want to get through christmas Uh, what she said is you know i'm not going to accept just getting by with it right i'm going to identify what's broken here why is it not acceptable because often people just then lower their standards right and then just accept it and then you just you know push the problem for future years Uh, i think what eileen did is i said no I, sh- I have to change my mindset that no, I don't want to just get through Christmas. I have high standards. Now, rather than just replace them, it's like no different technology. Let's just get rid of technology. No, maybe the technology is not the problem, but maybe it's behaviors. So she used her problem solving's ability to say, okay, here are the standards. I need to make sure that they know that we're not meeting them. Either the standards are wrong or, or they're not consistent about them. And let's sit down with them and make sure that they can react to me telling them. Mm. So my suspicion is her conversation with them told her whether or not there's a high likelihood that they're actually going to a listen, agree with it, commit to doing it, and then actually doing it. Mm.
2: Yes, that, and I would say, Ray, it was also on the, the flip side. So, you know, we had a very clear expectation of the standard that needed to be achieved. It wasn't being achieved. And when you dig deeper and you find out why it's because P&G wasn't delivering on their responsibilities. Mm. And when you think about a global company, a global contract, there's many, many, many um, entities that don't operate exactly the same way as the manufacturing site in Cincinnati, Ohio. And understanding that, and, you know, peeling back the layers to figure out what needs to be changed, what needs to be improved, It, it just takes time, but it needs dedication that no, it's not the buyer that's slamming the responsibility on the supplier and if they don't deliver well then you move away right you know it's really understanding what's needed on both sides to be successful and i think the the uh,
1: if i just can add one thing here because i think this is a critical part for the people in the audience is people are trying now to get their supply chains to respond to them right now people have more business than they have capacity mm-hmm. so if you if you come at them the automotive way of hey you know what, if you don't deliver for us, you know, you're gone. Wow. Um, yeah. I can tell you, I and mean, I was you know, running purchasing for a printing company years ago. And then as a part of growing uh, a business that was trying to scale quickly, when I went to do supplier assessments, the first three questions I asked was, what are we doing to make it hard to do business with?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you've got to create a place where they can complain about working with you and then you've got to react quickly to those comments. You know, for example, I remember one of them was our trucks show up to your dock and have to wait too long. Mm. Okay. One of them is you keep changing the schedule. One of them is you don't pay your bills on time. Okay.
0: Still a challenge. <laughs> <That's> still <laughs> but, a challenge. But,
1: but if we don't acknowledge that, how can we possibly get them to shift some of their capacity to us if we don't do our part? Right. Yeah. So we've got to be a premier customer so they could be a premier supplier.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that owning instead of always looking at the point fingers, uh, what both of you are speaking to is, is also looking inward to see how we, you know, where, uh, as Eileen, as you mentioned, where are we not honoring the promise and, and what else could we be doing uh, to make the situation relationship partnership work better? So I, I appreciate that. That takes a certain level of humility and you, you don't always find that uh, in leaders across uh, business. I want to shift gears. I want to. I feel. I feel like eileen We're going to have to have you back. I feel like there's a there's a supply chain master class here between you and Ray that we could that we could facilitate and have a lot of fun with. But we want to talk about what you're up to now. Uh, I, I know Ray's a big fan. Ray actually is a, a volunteer with this organization, and we want to. So let's start with finding out more. Kind of level setting. Last mile food rescue, uh, where you serve as COO. What does the organization? What is the organization? What do they do?
2: So Last Mile Food Rescue focuses on two big challenges that we're facing across, really across the world, but in particular in North America, in the United States, 40% of all the food, the good, good healthy food that we produce goes in the trash can. And it either goes in the trash can, you know, our personal trash cans at home, or more importantly, it goes in the trash can, it goes in the waste dump at major grocers, restaurants, event centers, caterers, hotels, you name it. If they produce food, they're wasting it. And we're not talking about banana peels. We're talking about good food that people could still take advantage of and, and, and lead a healthy life if they were to receive it. And so last mile food rescue is essentially a logistics organization. We figure out where that waste is generated. We um, make agreements with those food donors We empower a volunteer, a 100% volunteer um, community of drivers that bring that food from the point of of waste to agencies that are supporting those facing food insecurity. If we could capture just one quarter of the amount of food that's being wasted, we could solve the problem of food insecurity. And that's what we're going to do in Cincinnati and eliminate food insecurity.
0: I love that mission. And and you're right. We have such a big challenge. Uh, Some of the uh, some of our other interviews that we have put together as we dove in a little more to this, this um, the food waste challenge, but also the food insecurity challenge and and why in the world can we, you know, not figure it out. What what I've learned and and please share is in, in Europe, they address these, they've made progress because they're addressing it differently policy, regulations, penalties, and whatnot, you know, kind of the, more of the stick versus the carrot, and here we're still we're, we're kind of behind the progress they've made there. Massive opportunity. What um, what what does it take to get folks to to take action? That you in your experiences here, what do, what what do you see? What's that final motivating factor? Like, yes, we got to do something about it.
2: So I think that the, the people don't want to waste food. It's just a lot easier to, to put it out in the trash heap than to figure out what to do. We've got a lot of generous people out there. This concept of rescuing food is not a new one. You know, People are picking up bread from their local Panera or where have you and taking it to the soup kitchen all, all over the, the US, it happens. But it's not organized right and so all that we're focused on is how can we put that organizing mechanism in place so that from point a to point b we've got the most efficient efficient method companies like kroger don't want to throw food away right but if you think about what goes on in a in a in a grocery store it's a highly um, minimum wage workforce especially now in the midst of real workforce challenges, finding people to stay and do those kinds of jobs is is a real issue. And so they don't want to be in a position where, well, you know, guy that runs the produce department, you've got to save the food on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Thursdays, every other Thursday it's in the afternoon, because that's when somebody's got some free time to come and pick it up. I mean, they're not going to put up with that kind of thing. So if we can put a reliable, efficient, Repeatable process in place, it solves their problem. They're able to get monetary benefits in terms of a, a tax relief. They're they're not you know filling up the the dumpster with good food. Right. So it's a win win all around. But the key is putting a good efficient process in place for them, so that it's easier for right. them to donate their food than to that's throw. What it that's
1: in trash that's what I wrote down. You got to make it easy.
2: Mm-hmm. If you make it easy,
1: they'll do it. I mm-hmm. think as, as, uh, I mean, just mentioned, it's, it's just more, it's too difficult to do it on your own.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I'll take it a step further based on my two minute, quick study. <laughs> it's, uh, make it easy, but make them aware, right. They've got to be aware of this great solution that's out there that allows them to act on what they, as Eileen puts it, what they want to do anyway. Right. No yeah. one, I don't know about y'all. I feel, I hate throwing food out. Right. I hate it. I really do. So I love to hear the solution y'all have crafted to uh, do what Ray said, make it easy for folks to get good food to folks that, that can really use it. Ray, before we talk with Eileen about when she joined and, and what she does as COO, you're you know, being a volunteer. You're kind of, I, I think you're on the front lines kind of the operation. Uh, so t- very, in a nutshell, t- tell us about what you do in your role as a volunteer.
1: So in my role is I look for where is there available food? using this phenomenal app. And it's an amazing technology. Uh, you mentioned uh, you know, the sour bread starter. Somebody created a starter that allowed uh, Last Mile Food Rescue to kind of leap forward quickly. Uh, let Eileen explain that. But so I, like this morning, I looked up, says what's available. Uh, there's uh, produce at Castellini. I said, I will take that rescue. So I, it's similar to Uber who's available. So I took it from Castellini and I took it to I think it was uh, last the harvest or last bread down in uh, downtown Cincinnati,
0: like a food shelter and, or, or food bank,
1: uh, food bank. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the app is amazing. And I click on it. And then it tells me exactly how to get there. Gives me the information exactly. So I filled up the car this morning with produce. And this is the part that I guess was my aha for me. I I took another rescue to a food pantry. And what they said was, is how much this produce and this fresh vegetables and fresh uh, fruit brings dignity to people. And if you think of, you know, food pantries, you know, it's typically in the past and people's mindset, mine is it's canned food, things that can last a long time. What Last Mile Food Rescue is doing is this, it's getting the, the close to, you know, still good, but how do we rescue it before it goes bad? You know, so I have, you know, taken chicken, meat, milk, orange juice, donuts. And it was amazing. I took a donut one time to a place and they said, we have a lot of kids here. So, you know, for me, it's really fine. It's So I'm the Uber driver. Um, you know, Eileen and her team are finding the, you know, places that want to donate and then they're finding the places to take it to. And we are just the conduit.
0: Yes. you're, you're, you're the, the, the logistics, Ray, uh, you're, you ever, ever know are. you're ever think you'd be operating a logistics company, Ray.
1: <laughs> and, and the thing that makes it so easy for us is again, I can pull up this app here and it tells me here's all the, you know, here's what's available tomorrow. You know, and then I can say, you know what? I will take this from Kroger to the kitchen, uh, um, Queen City Kitchen. It's from seven thirty to nine. Or I can do a weekly one, where you can do the same route every week. Now, ideally, I'd love for companies who are watching this to say, "We'd like to be that corporate sponsor, and we'll have a different employee uh, do that." Um, it's it's just for volunteers. It's great because it's as you would like to do it,
0: mm. you can plug and in
1: Saturday. Okay. The girls canceled their game because of COVID. Guess what? I'm looking up what's going on on Saturday today. I did decided to do two. Um, and it's great. Cause one of them even says, call ahead because if we don't have anything, don't waste your time. Mm. So I called ahead and they said, you know what? We just gave it all out. Great. That actually even saves me time, <laughs> but I, I just thought the just the dignity of the freshness of this. Yes, Um, It's not, again, I can't think of a time I've taken anything that is not perishable. And they love it. They love the perishable uh, items. And again, they make it easy for me as a volunteer.
0: So it sounds like, uh, Eileen, that uh, your app gets high scores when it comes to uh, UX and VX, user experience and volunteer experience. And uh, that's really cool to see. So how let's just for the sake of time, let's talk about what you kind of shift gears a bit as, as chief operating officer of last mile food rescue, where do you spend your time? What's your favorite part of your role?
2: So early, um, and we've only been open for a little over a year early in my uh, tenure in this position, I was out on the road. I was doing rescues. I was finding out what we were getting from Castellini. I was, understanding the complexity of working with that app. It is very, very user friendly. Um, It takes you step by step through the process. But I I wanted to personally have that experience because we only exist with the 250 on a regular basis people that are out there on the road moving food for us. So I really wanted to dig into their experience. Um, As time progressed, I recognized that as good as the app is from a user experience, The back end is very manual. So just like any supply chain, you know, there's, there's risk in the unknown. We, we would really like to be able to think about, okay, there's food that's available. It can go to a number of different places. How do I come up with a methodology to say, food, this type of food, these are the agencies that are available. This is the zip codes that they're located in. How do I put a very effective mapping and matching process in place? How do I do that with technology? Because I'm a nonprofit. I've got a really small team. I've got a wonderful and mighty team. They're very, very bright people. But still, that mapping and matching is very manual for me. I do that all behind the scenes so that Ray has a really great experience. I want my rescues to be less than an hour. I want the food that's picked up from Kroger or from a convenience store or from an event center. If you think about it, those are three different types of food. You know, I, I'm not going to take the big load of vegetables from Castellini to an after-school program. They're going to want the bottles of milk that I get from UDF, right. um, ready-to-eat food. So that that whole concept of mapping and matching is, is a real um, important problem that has not been solved in the food rescue business. So that's where I'm spending a good bit of my time um, is on the technology and, and figuring out how we can... How we can do things far more le- efficiently, re- um, leveraging technology right. um, to take the place of right now, which is a lot of manual labor on the part of my team.
0: Gotcha. Well, and then,
2: yeah. then I'm, I'm also spending a lot of my time, you know, I feel like I trained for 28 years at, at PNG g <laughs> to do this job because I've got a wonderful staff um, and, you know, just coaching and developing them. They're all very young, um, coaching and developing them, teaching them things that, Frankly, I didn't really, I didn't think about the fact that I knew as much as I do. So, so, you know, there's a problem and I'm able to say, well, did you think about it this way? And, you know, there's this technology that we are, this, this methodology we used at PNG called three Ys. And you just ask why five times, five Ys rather, ask why five times. And eventually you get to the root cause or, right. or, you know, an, a, a fishbone analysis or a Pareto analysis, or right. you know, some very, very basic, basic. Tools and methodologies that are used to solve problems that I'm able to to train my young staff and and uh, it's just really rewarding for me to see what they're able to do.
1: I love and it. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna validate something because I can tell you I did two uh, deliveries: one to Bethany a House and one to uh, Lighthouse Youth Services. And what I brought them was for the kids.
2: Yeah. Yeah. As
1: opposed to you know the produce. Where I would bring that to, you know, the oh, one uh, food pantry who has, yeah. you know, 150 families, mostly immigrants, that they wanted fresh produce. So whatever you're doing on that part, I can see it as a volunteer because I can see the good, the good connection between the two.
0: Good. Mm. All right, man. So much, so much to talk about. So little time. Always is the case. <laughs> so clearly, y'all have y'all have come a long way. Just a little bit about little bit of time being in existence around a year. Is that right?
2: That's right. Yeah. Okay. We started in uh, November of 2020. Here it is wow. twenty twenty-two.
0: Okay. So and let's, then, let me, ahead,
2: uh,
1: right. I may jump in speaking of 2022. So, you know, Eileen, as you look at 2022, oh, hang on, hang oh, on,
0: Ray, hang on one minute. We'll get Please. there. I want to, oh. I want I want to, I want to give Eileen the opportunity to brag on that nimble, capable, powerful team that, that she's, oh. she's uh, leading. So, and then we'll get to the global supply chain landscape in 2022. But looking back at 2021, and thank you, Ray. Uh, looking back at 2021, and you, and you think about all the all the traction y'all have made, all the accomplishments, you name it, come a long way. What's one thing that you are most proud of? That last mile food rescue. Sorry.
2: I, I would have to say that it's it's what we were able to rescue. So we started the year not. Not having any idea how many people would want to be our Uber drivers, how many food donors would sign up with us, how many agencies would trust us, you know, because we're brand new in this business. I mean, you know, we got some smart people on the team, but I never ran a nonprofit. I hadn't really operated in this food business. So we put out a goal that we were going to raise that we were going to find 350,000 pounds of food. Well, we rescued 1.7 million pounds of food. This past wow.
0: year. That's gracious. So,
2: so we had this terminology at p we called it sandbagging. You know, you come in and say, oh, I can do such and such. <laughs> that wasn't a sandbag. That was just, we just didn't know. We just didn't understand. It wasn't like we were under promising. We just had no idea. And the great thing about my team is that, you know, we always talked about the fact that we're a startup, we're going to have to be nimble, we're going to have to think about we 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 learn one day, we apply the learnings the next day, we learn some more, so we're constantly pivoting as we learn new things. So our 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 food glide path, so to speak, our donation glide path changed as we learned, you know, what really was available from a company like Castellini, what was Available from a company like United Dairy Farmers that were all in. They wanted us to rescue food from ninety of their stores, like all at once. Um, we couldn't do it all at once, but over time, uh, we made some pretty significant progress. And I'm really looking forward to 2022 and to see what that turns into.
0: I am too. 1.7 million pounds of food rescued. I got the n- n- number right.
2: And how? And how many meals is that? Approximately. I- so, it's about one point six million meals. Yeah, there wow. you know there's a, there's a fancy calculation that uh, that feeding America has determined mm. based on the variety of foods that are rescued, the weights of different foods, and what that what what would amount to a meal that would feed a family.
0: So. Wow. All right. so, Ray, I'm gonna pass the baton to you in just a second. I know you're excited, like as I am I to learn what Eileen's looking at uh, broader, but one quick uh, observation you know, the last couple of years as between the lockdown and the challenges and, and the differences between, uh, you know, commercial uh, food supply chains and institutional, you know, I'm, I'm hoping when, when, when it comes to innovation, it comes to, you know, that matching and mapping that you're talking about, Eileen, and, and how do we save more? I'm hoping we can build more parallels so that if we hit challenges with, milk, or, you know, uh, institutionalized certain products, and and that and that and, and they hit disruption. How can we divert it so that uh, less of that goes to to waste? Um, so we'll see. But I love it's going to take what startups powerful startups like Last Mile Food Rescue is doing for the rest of the industry to learn from. So thank you for what you do, you and your team there. 1.7 million pounds. Okay, Ray, Where are we going next with Aline? Well,
1: before we go there, you mentioned uh, milk. So I was watching something that talked about virtual reality for cows, where they're putting (laughs) new goggles on cows. So the cows can see pastures rather than being inside and actually can produce more milk. Love it. So You talked about artificial intelligence earlier. Now we can get into virtual reality and figure out how to connect the right cow with the right kids for the milk. So you're and, saying and
0: maybe a Moo-averse.
1: Yes, yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, there, I think the other one was the Moo-tricks. Uh, uh,
0: the- <laughs> we can keep going with the exactly. mom and dad jokes, right?
1: So so I think the, the area that, uh, you know, Eileen just mentioned about, you know, what they're doing, the n- amount of food and the team that she has, you know, I, I think they're going to be able to do a lot uh, of great things. Moving into 2022, when you look at the global supply chain outside of you know, last mile food rescue, just your experience and your knowledge of what's going on, you know what are the what are the two or three topics that you're thinking about at this moment?
2: One of them is education. So you mentioned Scott, you know, making sure that people are aware of this problem. When the three of us were kids, there wasn't really any such thing as recycling, right? I mean, I remember my brother was, had a paper route and my mom had a big old station wagon and we'd go about gathering the newspapers and then you'd go to the station and be weighed, you know, and then you get paid for the amount of newspaper. That was, that was my recycling experience as a kid. And and we were unusual. (laughs) It wasn't normal to be loading up your station wagon with newspapers and, and getting a few dollars. But now, of course, everybody recycles. It's part of our psyche, you know It's what we do. I, I'm hopeful that as this concept of food rescue gets more and more attention, as people recognize that it's a problem and it's a problem that can be solved and it can be solved in a, in a really wonderful way that helps those that are facing food insecurity, that it'll become far more endemic that you know it's just the way that we think the way that we operate. So that's one of the things that I'm working on is education. The other is, um, you know, something that every supply chain faces is just the risk of the unknown, right? You know, things change. But if if we can um, have a better appreciation based on our history, based on our data, know what's happened before and what the needs are um, that have been identified before, we then are in a far better position to do that pivot. Um, pivot thing that's necessary when all of a sudden you don't have as much milk from one source as you, as you've had in the past, how do you, how do you, how do you pivot and make sure that those needs are met effectively based on what, what happened previously? So speaking of
1: education, let's take a quick second here. And I think it's an important piece. Um, you mentioned, you know, 40% of the food goes to waste. Let's talk about food insecurity. Let's the first let's level set and define it. What is food insecurity?
2: Food insecurity is essentially anyone who does not know where their next meal is coming from. So we we differentiate food insecurity from hunger because all three of us could be hungry because we didn't get lunch today. Right. But that doesn't. That's that's not the same as being food insecure, where you do not know when or where you will get your next meal. So it could be. I mean, we've got a situation in Cincinnati this week where the schools are closed because of COVID. And, you know, kids are being fed in school, they they get their meals in school. And so we've got a a very major project that Last Mile Food Rescue is working together with the Free Store Food Bank to set up operations where families can come by and get that food that the children would have received in school. So, you know, I, I think, I think this concept of food insecurity is, It's it's essentially helping people. I'd like to take that issue off the table to use a procurement term, take the issue of food off the table, because if, if people can get their nutrition needs met, then they can focus on spending their dollars on transportation, utilities, rent. Get, they don't have to think about education for their kids because their kids are are in school and they're they're well fed. Right. They can focus on their own needs to get a better better lifestyle from for themselves, get the training, the education that they need because this food issue is it's not a problem. It's taken care of.
1: And there was a school in Avondale that I was volunteering with, and they said fifty five kids come to school every day hungry. Mm-hmm. So they wow. actually have a, you know, groom room and then they have to feed them because if they can't, they're hungry, they're not able to focus. And as you mentioned, when there's long breaks for winter, that, A, they don't have food, but also it costs their families more money. Right. Uh, what percentage education-wise of Cincinnati, how many, what's the population that is uh, is in a situation where their their food is not secure?
2: Pre-COVID, it was one in seven. People were facing food insecurity, and now it's one in five in the midst of COVID. And of course, we're we're trying to affect that in a very big way in collaboration with the Free Store Food Bank. Mm.
1: Yeah, so twenty percent of the population in a very healthy economy and a very healthy city is in this situation.
0: Mm. Well, I'm glad you know um, that's a somber note for sure, and it's something we all got to do about. Uh, we all must do something about, but. The good news here is, with the, the the awesome work that Last Mile Food Rescue is doing, the needle is being moved, Uh, and and that is and and now if we can going back to your enterprise way back earlier in the interview when you talked about you know the global industry and and there there there, there were those islands of excellence. Well, you know, there's a lot of communities I'm hoping that can learn from your story, learn from what you are doing about it, and can help folks in need in their own communities. So thank you very much for taking time to share y'all's incredible story. Uh, given how long y'all have been at it, uh, the mission's been, uh, that y'all been leading the mission, uh, we're hoping that 2022 is your most successful year yet, year, year yet, but far beyond kidding aside, wishing you all the best as the organization continues to grow its wherewithal and help uh, more and more folks by saving food that would otherwise, you know, be headed, headed to the garbage or it's a word I'm thinking of landfill. landfill. Thank you. Thank you You're very welcome. much, Ray. Hey, some days are better than others when it comes to my vocabulary. It's easy to sit,
1: easy to sit here and just watch you
0: <laughs> think okay. and
1: speak at the same time. I don't know how you do this. You do an amazing job with these podcasts, by the way.
0: Well, I appreciate it, but you know, great guests, great show. And, and, and even, even better, wonderful purpose, exceptional mission, even better show. So thank you so much uh, to you both. Eileen for the story and Ray for your voluntary work with Last Mile Food Rescue. But for our listening audience, before we wrap here with Eileen uh, Budo and uh, Ray Atia, I, I want both of y'all. I'm going to pose this question to both of y'all. So if you think about a room full of young folks that that you have their captive attention, right, you've got that, that they're completely uh, undivided attention. And they're all wanting to break into global supply chain and progress into senior levels of leadership. What's a piece or two of critical advice that you would offer them? And Eileen, let's start with you.
2: I think the the best employees I've ever uh, coached and developed have been the curious ones. The ones that are not afraid to ask why. I mentioned a methodology at P&G, ask why five times to get to the root cause. The, The new employees. Employee that asks why, that stays curious, that's always interested in learning more. In contrast to help, telling me how much they know, um, mm. is the employee that I'm going to invest time in, um, that I'm going to um, expect a really wonderful career trajectory, because they're not stuck in what they know. They're seeking to know what they don't know and learn more and continue to learn as they continue in their career.
0: I love that folks stay curious and act on that curiosity is, is is what I heard Eileen just share, Ray, what would you add?
1: You know, I think the greatest value is between the seams. When I look at a supply chain, if you're into logistics, you know, there's individual processes, but the biggest waste or the biggest opportunity is when different functions organizations have to connect you know eileen mentioned some of this stuff with her png work with so i think the my suggestion to people is reject the incentives to optimize one function and often those incentives are set up as you know measures and and so forth and really look at the whole system look at the process look at the whole system and i think that if you want to you know work your way into a senior leadership role or a role where you have greater influence you're somebody who can see the whole system and not try to you know in some cases you may have to make one function you know harder or eliminate it to benefit the whole system mm. and i think that you know system thinking approach is super critical so you have to have a vision of what the end result looks like before you get into trying to optimize one function.
0: Love it. I love that. Uh, I completely wholeheartedly agree with you both. And I appreciate you offering up that advice uh, to our listeners. Um, Okay. Listeners, now you can take action. You can connect with both of these folks. You can get behind what they're doing uh, at Last Mile Food Rescue. Uh, How can folks, Eileen, connect uh, with you and the team and organization, maybe maybe even act to help the mission for it?
2: Sure. Sure. So uh real easy website. You can go to lastmilefood.org. O-R-G. You can, can connect with me, Eileen, at lastmilefood.org. You can also connect with a company called Food Rescue Hero. They are the, uh, the, the company that has created our app, our mobile technology, wonderful partner to us. Um, so any of those ways would be a great next step for any of your listeners interested.
0: Awesome. We're going to make it really easy. We're going to drop those things in the show notes. And so our listeners are one click away from the episode page. So big thanks to Eileen Udo with last mile food rescue. Okay. Ray, you're not getting out of this question either. You, as you stated earlier on the front end of the show through some of your dealings, you now got a little more free time on your hands. You're doing good things clearly as you've identified, as we've identified here with that time. But if folks are curious, you've dropped a ton of knowledge on this one. Both of y'all have, by the way. And we're going to have to bring y'all back for that supply chain master class, Eileen <laughs> and Ray. But how can folks connect with you?
1: Um, so for me, my preference is LinkedIn. So I've got uh, my LinkedIn, Ray Tia, there. there. Uh, I put a, a lot of content from my books. You can see one here, one there. Uh, they can go on Amazon. I would also say for those of you on LinkedIn, follow Last Mile Food Rescue. Um, and as Eileen just mentioned, you know, the food rescue heroes, for those of you outside of Cincinnati, they can be the Eileen in those other cities and kick this off and, you know, make this go. So for me, it's uh LinkedIn is probably the best. Obviously I've got a Twitter at Ray Atia. Those are the two uh, best places to connect with me.
0: Wonderful. It's just that easy. Well, again, a big thanks to uh, Eileen Budo, COO with last mile food rescue. Thanks so much, Eileen.
2: Thank you, Scott. It was great to be with you. Thanks for, uh, for, for introducing me to your audience.
0: Hey, you bet. Love the mission y'all are doing and better yet, love the progress 1.7 million pounds. That is uh, an organization on the move. Ray Atiyah, really appreciate you jumping in the co-host chair and also introducing us to all the good things that last mile food Rescue is up to.
1: Oh, Scott, you make it so much fun. It's energizing. Uh, I miss seeing you miss working with you. So thank you for having us.
0: You bet. You know We've got a series here. And by the way, thank you, Ray. Uh, We're going to have to do a lot more collaboration and a lot more interviews. We have a series here at Supply Chain Now um, that Vector Global Logistics leads for us, Uh, Enrique Alvarez over there, and it's entitled Logistics with Purpose. And I'll tell you, this conversation here today, if that doesn't illustrate exactly what that is, logistics with that noble purpose, I don't know what is. So I'm so glad that Needs that we have in our communities uh, and the nonprofits that serve them are able to tap such incredible leaders as we've heard from here today. So uh, we'll have to bring on Aileen uh, back uh, later in 2022 and get an update on the progress. Listeners, if you all enjoyed this episode as much as I have, check us out supplychainnow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, if you take anything away from this conversation. Take this away, please. On behalf of our entire team here at Supply Chain Now, Scott Luton and Ray is signing off for now, challenging you to be like Eileen. Hey, do good, get forward, be the change that's needed. On that note, we'll see you next time right back here on Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community.